Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you are here this morning. Good morning to all of you in Port Perry. So glad that you're meeting us this morning in that high school. And good morning to all of you watching and listening all around the world. I don't know if you were with us last Sunday morning and evening as we launched our new ministry year, but the only words that I think that I can articulate last weekend are wow and thank you, Lord. Would anyone else agree if you are with us? Last weekend, uh, we announced a series of amazing things that uh, we need to continue to celebrate, pray on, and think on. Last weekend, we announced we're going to be sending a team into Bangladesh to support and learn from our global partners in a very, very difficult place. Last week, we, with great expectancy, announced C4 Bowmanville was going to be held in Bowmanville High School, and it's going to be launching on January 28th, and we're so pleased by that. And by the way, we had a core barbecue that happened, core team barbecue, about a week and a half ago. Over 100 people were at that barbecue, which is amazing, so we can celebrate that. Uh, last week, uh, as you saw, we started our new theme, Pilgrims and Pioneers. And then last week, if you were with us, uh, we released this. This is our first C4 church-wide magazine with 12 power- powerful stories of God really working among us. And by the way, if you haven't got this yet, we really encourage you to get one. What we uh, started hearing, though, within 24 hours, people started calling us and telling us that they had been so moved by these stories personally to joy and to tears, personally thanking God. But beyond that, they started actually handing these books out to people who don't go to church to invite them to meet the God that we're meeting. Isn't that unbelievable that that's taking place? Such amazing work that God is doing. And then last week, I should also mention this. Most of you don't know this. We had our largest amount of children in history of this church last weekend, which is amazing. Uh, You can uh, pray for our kids' workers. We had over 300 kids just under grade four last week. So Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, uh, which is great. And then last night, last Sunday night, we gathered together to worship God and and release our first EP. And if you were there, uh, you know what took place. And what I posted on Instagram, I think sums it up best, at least for myself. I wrote lots of people, amazing talent, real worship, great volunteers, amazing leaders, an expectant community, a very exciting step towards a new ministry experience, promises prayed for for years coming true. But actually, I wrote what stood out beyond all those amazing and true things was the unity between local churches as so many churches across the GTA came and sang with us, the genuine sense of God's presence, the genuine physical expression of the joy of our salvation, and a real sense that we as a church just witnessed what God's growing new normal was going to be for us as a community. Last Sunday night was an epic moment, not because of the experience, but because God visited us. Would anyone want to say amen to that this morning? I think so. And so today, as we're growing with expectancy and thankfulness, I want us to take another moment to look at another growing move of God that we are participating in, that we've been talking about and praying about since last May. It's the Alpha GTA campaign. Last week, I shared that across the whole GTA, over 100 churches had committed to invite tens of thousands of people across our city that we love to struggle and see if Christianity is even true, intellectually viable, experientially right. This is the largest invitation to explore the Christian faith in over 25 years. And like I shared last week, over within C4, 
we're going to be launching 14 variations of Alpha within the next few weeks. And our goal is to have 250 people join us to explore Jesus. Now, here's the good news many of you may not know. On Thursday night this week, we had 140 people gather in Auditorium C from our church and 11 other churches to get trained and pray for the Alpha experience. It was just amazing. But as we were gathering that night, there were new statistics given that I would need to share with you as we get going today. The latest update is larger than we thought. There is now over 194 alphas registered in the GTA. There's 162 churches and organizations that are now going to be running alpha across the whole GTA. There are 93 billboards, 300 bus ads, 15 bus murals, 500 interior wall transit ads, two large wall murals at the Queen and Dundas subway stations. There's a huge digital board on the Gardner Expressway. So when you're sitting there, you have to think about Jesus because you cannot escape. And then most brilliantly is this. Last week, uh, we set up uh, right in the Toronto International Film Festival, a huge digital board inviting everyone, including all those movie stars, to check out Alpha. We've had over 21 million impressions on social media so far. And by the way, all of these numbers do not include any Alpha that is being launched in a home or a business by a group of people. And this does not also include the majority of youth Alphas that are going to be launching and coming online in the next four weeks. Now, why am I sharing all this with you? Because we as a church are at the center of this most amazing move of God. And I need to remind you again today that this wasn't supposed to happen. And someone walked forward and gave a million dollars and said, we need to reach Toronto. And that began the ball rolling. Now, I need to speak to all of us and I need to rally us because this is a God-given moment that we have not seen in so very long. Now, if there's a passage that speaks to us about the very real and practical steps that we are all called to do together in this moment that God has decided sovereignly to work, it's actually in the same passage we were in last week in the books of Exodus. So if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 17 again, and we're going to keep going in the story. Now, if you were with us last week, you might remember where we ended. It was only two and a half months after the exodus and the splitting of the Red Sea. The people of God three times have grumbled and complained against Moses and Aaron and God as each crisis appeared. First, as they left Egypt, there was a water crisis. They found water, water, but it was actually bitter. It was undrinkable and poisonous, and God made it sweet. Then they started complaining about food because there was no food and God gave manna from heaven and sent quail and they ate more than they needed every day. And then again, there was a third crisis. There was no water. And then God instructed Moses to take a staff, strike a rock, and suddenly water came from nothing. God never let his people down. Now, as we were walking through last week, another lesson was already emerging. He was basically saying to his people, that is God, stop grumbling, stop turning on each other, and stop turning on the leaders I've given you, and stop actually not trusting in me. Inward strife will only lead to disaster. The real enemy that you're about to face is on the outside. If you divide from the inside, you will divide from the outside and you will fall. Well, that's exactly what happens if you keep reading Exodus 17. The fourth crisis that takes place with God's people is unexpected. There's a surprise invasion against the Israelite camp by a group called the Amalekites. Now, this large nomadic tribe, we are told by historians, owned the caravan routes between Egypt and Arabia. 
It, it records like this in Exodus 17:8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now the attack was violent and the attack was unprovoked and the attack was without mercy and the attack was life-threatening not only to a small group, to the whole community. Years after this moment took place, which was seared into the collective consciousness of the Israelites, it was recorded like this in Deuteronomy 25:17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and you were worn out, they met you on the journey and they attacked all who were lagging behind and they had no fear of God. Now many of us could read this simple verse and miss the pain of this and the tragedy of this. Many of God's people that actually made it out of Egypt, they are finally free. They are no longer slaves. They were there and witnessed the 10 plagues. They witnessed the sea getting split in half. They actually ate manna from heaven. They ate the quail that was sent. They drank water from that rock. And then such injustice that they are killed or even worse, possibly enslaved again by Amalekite raiders as they're taken back into the Amalekite camp. Now there's more here than meets the eye if you first read it. See, this large nomadic tribe actually comes from the same family as the Jews. The Jewish nation comes from a man named Jacob who had 12 sons. The Amalekites have ties to Jacob's brother, that is Esau. Esau's family became the Edomites, who had by military strategy and by marriage joined the Amalekites. So this is an ongoing, old, unresolved family battle that has larger consequences than either brother could have ever understood when arguing over stew and birthrights, if you know the story. But this isn't just about unresolved history. This is now the beginning of an ongoing, terrible, death-in-life struggle. The people of God would face the Amalekites again and again. We find this when they cross into the promised land with Joshua. They face them. When God's people turn away from God in the time of the judges, the Amalekites invade at least twice. Even King Saul and later King David would have to face them. And either later beyond that, almost one of the most catastrophic stories in the whole Bible during the time of Esther is when one man named Haman, very similar to a Hitler figure, tried to commit full-out genocide of the Jews. And what is striking if you do the history is this, that Haman himself has Amalekite ancestry. Now beyond the past and the future, ask yourself the question, why would the Amalekites attack anyway? Well, the answer is only answered when you see it from below and above. From below, they wanted plunder. From below, the Jews were slaves, no standing army. They were not well established. They were not guarded, easy picking, easy slaves, easy money. But there's more. There is a deep, powerful force that is inspiring the Amalekites. See, they are inspired by the gods they worship, and these gods are not just inventions of human fantasy. They are actually demonic forces that have been resisting God since the beginning of time, and this is a supernatural attempt to stop God and his people from coming into the promised land because this is actually God's preparation for Jesus coming. Every single time God moves to save humanity, Satan shows up. Now, this is a huge test for Moses' leadership. He goes from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis. Now, what will he do? It says in verse 9 that Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Slaves would have to become warriors in this moment. No training, no power, no weapons, and yet we need to defend ourselves, Moses says. Now, I want you to think about the fear of this, the concern and the question around this because they have no training, no army, no weapons. But Moses does command his right hand, Joshua, to organize and resist this ongoing invasion. By the way, this is the first time we ever meet Joshua in the Bible. 
But as we will see, Moses does not just say, Joshua, go in my stead and we're going to trust in your military growing expertise or no, we're not just going to trust in the men that are going to give their lives for family and country. No, this is larger. This is scarier. Self-defense and self-reliance will not win this day. So if we are to survive the very next day and to survive this ongoing crisis, then we have to go to someone that is greater than us. We have to go back to God. We have to go back to the same God that sent the 10 plagues on the Egyptians, the same God that split the Red Sea, the same God that defeated the greatest military superpower of that day. To him we must go, giver of water, giver of food. And if he does not show up, it doesn't matter how courageous we are, we're done. So Joshua, you do what you need to do and I'm going to do what I need to do. And then Moses utters these very interesting words. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, I've read this ever since I was three years old, this story. I love this story in the cartoon Bible. But I had never actually seen the power of that little word, tomorrow. This isn't just good wisdom. This isn't just a good leadership decision, nor was it an arrangement between the Jews and the Amalekites. Tomorrow we'll meet. No, no, no. Something else is happening. Moses, who walks with God like a friend, knows what God is going to do already tomorrow. You say, John, well, how do you know that? Because if you go back into the Exodus accounts, we see this time and time again. When Moses faced Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, he already knew God's will before he spoke. And three different times, God instructed Moses to confront Pharaoh and connected it to tomorrow. Exodus 8.20, here's one of the examples. Then the Lord said to Moses, you get up early in the morning and you confront Pharaoh as he goes the river and you say to him, this is what God says. You let my people go, so they'll worship me. And if you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you, your officials and your people and into your homes. I will make a distinction between my people and your people, and this sign will occur tomorrow. In other words, if you read Exodus as a whole, you understand that Moses is always talking to God before he acts. So tomorrow is actually not just a phrase. Tomorrow is not just an idea. He knows that tomorrow God is going to show up in this battle and confront evil like he had done with Moses. He goes with confidence. But also Moses knows that God chooses human partners. Tomorrow, he says, I'm going to stand. Well, what does that mean? He's just going to stand looking, having a latte while people are giving their lot? No. He's going to cry out. This is an act of prayer. He says, I am going to face heaven as I have done before. I'm going to stand in the gap and I am going to pray. Time and time again, if you read Moses' whole story, you find him facing God, crying out and standing in the middle and standing in the gap and wrestling and wondering and struggling before God for the people. Moses, by this simple statement, is saying, since I know that our God is about to act, and since I know that my role is to stand in prayer, I will do this, but I will take only one item with me. I'm not taking a weapon. I'm not taking a speech with me. I'm not going to rally the community with some great oration, nor is my very personhood going to be the epicenter of inspiration, because actually, for most of this, I'm not even going to be looking down at our own people. I'm going to take one thing. I'm going to take the staff of God. Now, do you remember the first time in this story when God took something normal with no power, no supernatural ability, the obvious, the boring, and he changed it, and it changed the world? Moses finally met God face to face at the burning bush, and God commands Moses to go and set his people free. And Moses, the great leader, the great prayer warrior at the beginning, responds to God with no faith, only fear. 
And this is how God and Moses' conversation went in Exodus 4. Moses says to God, but wonder if they don't believe me or listen to me or say, God didn't appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? It's a shepherd's staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, it became a snake, and he ran from it. I was really encouraged that he ran from it. I didn't feel as emasculated. If he ran, I would too. Okay. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. I I would take more faith just to do that. Anyway, he did it. He reached it out. He took hold of the snake. It turned back into a staff. This, said the Lord, is so they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So Moses later with Aaron went and confronted Pharaoh with this very staff. And in the very first major encounter, he throws the staff down in front of Pharaoh and it becomes a snake. And Pharaoh laughs in his face. And he calls three of his warlocks and sorcerers over and says, you think you have power? Boys, demonstrate. And they throw their three staffs down and they become snakes. See, this is not just mythology. This actually happened. This is an all-out example of spiritual conflict. The God of the universe versus the God of the nations. Well, what happened? Moses' snake killed the three other snakes and ate them. God undermines the power of the demonic on their own turf in Egypt. Amen and amen. And at the same time, then he takes that very staff and he takes it and turns the Nile blood red. Then at least two or three times he initiates the plagues of Egypt with that staff. And during the Exodus, Moses stretches out his hands with that staff and splits the Red Sea. Later, he strikes that rock with that same staff and water comes from nothing. See, this staff represents the power of God. This is the spiritual gift of Moses. This is the conduit of God's very work. And now in this next crisis, he says, I'm going to go knowing God is going to act and I will pray because it is my calling and I will take God's anointing with me. God has given me, to, given me permission to use his credit card and I'm going to use it without hesitation. And so the next day the battle begins. And don't forget, it's real. Blood, sweat, and death. A nation's fate hangs in the balance and as organized chaos is happening below, the real battle happens above. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered and Moses and Aaron and Ur went to the top of the hill. As Joshua goes down, three leaders go up because the battle has to be won above and below. Now, by the way, let's not become overly spiritual. You just can't pray and intercede and think you don't have to do anything. You still have to go into the valley because the actual enemy is real. It's like the story that comes later in Jericho. Oh, yeah, God's going to make the walls fall over, but you still have to walk around it a few times. Oh, right, when Jesus comes, yes, he turns water into wine, but the servants still had to fill the jugs. Oh, prayer covers and prayer supports and prayer undergirds, but actually you still have to act for it to happen. You need above and below to see God work. It's actually very similar to what the psalmist said in Psalm 28.2. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands to your holy place. Well, this is what Moses does. As long as Moses held up his hands, verse 11, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. From the early Jewish moments and scholars to the rabbinic schools to the church fathers to the Reformation, they all saw this as an act of prayer and an act of heaven. 
As Moses continued to pray and call down the power and authority of heaven, Israel would win. The battle is truly won, though, on the hill, not in the valley. But when prayer falters, hear this this morning, church, when prayer falters, when the battle begins to weaken because prayer weakens, all is lost. Why? Because if God is not showing up, all we are left with is ourselves and self-sufficiency, and we lose every single time when we rely on me or us. So here now before us is one of the greatest examples of standing in the gap, of what people call intercession. I love what Richard Foster wrote on this when he said, when you move from petition, that's asking for something for yourself, to intercession, you begin to shift your gravity from your own needs to the needs and concerns of others. Intercessory prayer is selfless prayer. It is self-giving prayer. Intercession is entirely about bringing the needs of others into God's presence. It's, it's doing it with passion, but it's not just boldly going before God and saying, I'd like this. It's actually you stay in God's presence until there is an answer. Do you remember Abraham wrestling with God over Sodom and Gomorrah? Think about Anna in the book of Luke who said that she worshiped day and night fasting and praying. Or do you remember Elijah in 1 Kings 18? He was actually trying to bring God's people back. And in 1 Kings 18, it says that there was the Baal prophets and God and himself, Elijah, and there was two altars and whoever answered by fire was the true God. And God answered with fire and the hearts of the people turned back, but the work was not done. Why? Because Elijah reminds us in 1 Kings 18, there had been a drought for three and a half years on God's people and there was no water. And he was so desperate for a full move of God, not only did he see fire from heaven and the false prophets removed and the people turned back, he then went after that great exceptional moment and he began to pray more, not less. It says in 1 Kings 18.42, Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent his knee, uh, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, you go and look towards the sea. And the servant came back and says, well, there's nothing there. Seven times Elijah Elijah said, go back. This is implying that seven times he's crying out in prayer for God to act. The seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. And suddenly, meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. A wind rose and a heavy rain came upon the whole land. Seven times Elijah so intensely bent over in deep prayer, asking God to give life again to a dying land. So grieved, such agonizing prayer. It's the same thing we see in Jesus when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestling over the whole human race. To win the battle, prayer and intercession and travailing, standing in the gap, whatever you call it, is not option. It is necessity. And yet, I love how the Bible doesn't exaggerate. In the midst of this call for grand prayer to see the real battle won, we're still human. We're still weak. We're still in need of help. Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, said, I'm not sure if I can do this. And think about Moses. Moses is 80 plus years old. He sat standing on top of a hill, raising his hands all day in the heat of the sun as his whole nation is at risk of being killed or enslaved below. I guarantee you fatigue would take its toll on me in 10 minutes, let alone 12 hours. But if he stopped praying and he raised his hands and then they fell, the people would die. It says in verse 12, when Moses' hand grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. 
Aaron and Ur held his hands up, one on each side and one to another, so his hands remained steady all the way till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Community is the only way you win this. Now the battle is finally won. God comes through. The people of God stood their ground, did not let fear or lack of supplies or training stop them. Aaron and Ur and Moses demonstrate what team leadership looks like in the most profound of ways. Moses, as now an aged man, stands in the gap in a way most of us who are younger would never be able to do, it would seem. And with all of that done, as they begin to bury their dead, as they'd have to reorganize and people would have to mourn the loss of their sons and brothers and their husbands, one last moment unfolds in the background that is most important. As it all came to an end, God drew close, not to everyone, just to one person, to Moses. And he tells Moses what to do next. And what he chose to tell him to do next is more important than many of us would realize. God comes close to Moses after 12 hours of prayer and interceding and everything being at stake. And while God's work was so fresh and so literally in front of his eyes and so clear, God said to Moses, you write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and you make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name Amalekite from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. What's implied here is shocking. Moses, over 80 years old after a difficult day's work, begins to pile stones after raising his hands for 12 hours. He builds an altar post-crisis, but what's so interesting, so weird, so shocking is the altar is built, but nothing is to be sacrificed on it. Now ask yourself the question. There's no one else around except Moses and God, it would seem. And why is this amazing old leader piling stones? Well, here and across the Old Testament, to remember what God has done, the people of God would gather large piles of stones, and they were called Ebenezer stones. By the way, this now probably clarifies something for you who grew up in church, who used to sing a hymn where you'd sing about Ebenezer and you'd think about Ebenezer Scrooge and have no clue what was going on. Ebenezers were stones of remembrance, stones of hope and help. Here's what they used to do. We will physically record. We will set up places to remember what has been given and what God has done so we will not fall prey to the idea that we did this in our own power and we will not forget that God saved us so we will not look to other gods and we will begin to pile stones so we can teach our children and their children and their children's children that the God that we know and follow and encounter is the true God of heaven and earth. And so Moses as he's piling and building this Ebenezer, a new name of God is uttered. The Lord is my banner. Now, a banner is a modern, what we would consider a flag today. In ancient times, banners were made of wood connected to a pole, and they'd be in front of the army or sent on a high hill, and they were a sign of allegiance, a sign of identity, and a place to rally around. But what is so beautiful here is actually God himself is the place we rally around. And God himself is who we give allegiance to. And God himself, we rally around him. God is so much more than some flag. The battle is done with the support of guide and guidance of God. This is why Moses calls God, our God is our banner. Another way of saying this is this, our God is our warrior. Our God is our victory. 
He's basically proclaimed, oh God, your victory is complete and total. It's your power and your strength and you will break and move anything that stands against your will. Who is like you among the gods? No one. Our God is our banner. Now, why did he say this? He said this because hands had been lifted up against the throne of God and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now, you sitting here in 2017 are going, God, you having a bad day? You overreacting just a little bit against some desert tribal nomadic group? No, actually not really. First, I want to remind you, because <coughs> context is so important. They attack God's people without cause. This was unprovoked. The people in this situation that are the pure innocent party are the Jewish people. Second, the thing we need to remember once again, whether you like it or not, whether it violates your view of individual rights or not, is this. When you attack God's people, you attack God. When Saul was persecuting Christians, the very thing that Jesus said to him is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, beating me? They are the victims in this situation. But why generation to generation? Why such an explicit, terrifying statement? Well, here's why. As one person said, God shows his wrath against this nation because they are attempting to get in the way of his redemptive plan. Israel is not just some other little nation. This tiny people is the vehicle that God has chosen through which he is going to redeem every human, humanity. It's not saying all are going to save, but this is his way so everyone gets to come back, including the ancestors of the Amalekites. And actually, it's not just about us. This is actually the start of redeeming creation. Israel's redemption is phase one of that redemptive plan. And God guards this plan with extreme jealousy to set everything that was lost in Eden right. No one will get in the way of God coming to save the world. Now, let me make the needed connection this morning because it matters. This group of true historical events that did take place were shadow and preparation, of course, for Jesus. The great enemy of the human family, there are three that enslave us, is sin, death, and Satan. And in love, we know that the great good news of Christianity is that God stepped in and in love, he rescued us and he not only redeems us out of the Egypt of sin, death, and slavery, he actually also prevents the enemy from taking us back. He intervenes when the enemy comes back after we're out of slavery and tries taking us back and he will not allow it. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus fulfills this whole story on a global scale because Jesus is the better sacrifice and Jesus is the better warrior and Jesus is the better better intercessor. See, Moses stood on the hill between two others, and there the battle was decided. Do you see the connection? Jesus is actually the better Moses, because later Jesus would come, and he'd go to another hill, and he'd actually stretch out his hands between two other people, and there he'd overcome not the Amalekites, but all evil, and he'd provide a way back for all human beings, never to go back to spiritual Egypt again. See, Jesus is always the better Moses. He's not just the better sacrifice, he's the better intercessor. Jesus, if you believe this or not, this is what's happening, happening right now if you're a Christian. He stands before God, the Father, right now, 24 hours a day, and he stands for you, and he prays for you, but not on some hill. God's presence is the place where Jesus intercedes for us. See, Moses was a foreshadow for what Jesus does for us. 
It's what St. Paul wrote so long uh, later in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say in response to these things? Like if God is for us, then who can truly be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has elected, predestined, chosen? No, no, it's God who justifies, makes us right. Who then is it who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. See, Jesus not only is the better sacrifice, Jesus right now is in the heavenlies and he's praying for you this morning right now. And here's the beautiful truth. Jesus will forever pray for us and will forever cover us because we will need eternal coverage and that's what he will do for us. But not only is Jesus up on some hill dying for us or up in the heavenlies praying for us, Jesus also went down into the valley to face the enemy of our souls. I know some of you know this, but let me make the connection. Joshua, in Hebrew, when you translate it in Greek, is the name what? Jesus. Joshua means God saves. When Hebrew people would hear the name Jesus, they'd hear Joshua. And so Jesus is the better Joshua, not just the better Moses. What did Jesus say just before he died in John 12, 31? Oh, now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to have. Or later, what did John, his best friend, write in 1 John 3, 8? The reason why the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. See, as I've preached before, in that one act at the cross, sends the cross of Christ, where Jesus dealt with all the barriers between us and God. He pardons us, liberates us, stands in the gap for us. He fills the gap for us. He prays us, prays for us. He pays the ransom for us. There he acts like the better Moses, and there he acts like the better Joshua, overcoming all evil, making a public display of them, actually liberating us and never allowing us to go back. That is why God's name is the Lord is our banner, and that is why it's a great name to claim in your life and over this church, because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Spirit, the blessed Trinity, one God, is forever our warrior and our banner. Anyone want to say amen to that this morning? That's amazing truth. So now, church, let me actually make all the points come home. Let me speak to you now about now. We live in the fourth largest city in North America. We live in the most multicultural city on earth. We live, depending on what year, in the top one, two, or three best places on earth to live. You're like, really? Yeah, it doesn't get much better than this, other than Vancouver, but I'm still staying here. We live in this city. 300 heart languages are spoken every day in this city. The world is here. And this is what is taking place. God sovereignly has decided to rally the church to invite this grand, beautiful, splendid city to see if they want good news. So we need to ask ourselves this question. Because I know there's a lot going on and we're all really busy and we're getting back to school and to work and we're... What is the Spirit of God asking us to do in a moment 
where there's unprecedented church unity, unprecedented conversations about Jesus in the city that we love. How many times have we said in this church, if Jesus touches Toronto, every city on earth is touched in 24 hours because everyone's here and everyone has a relative somewhere else. So what are we being asked to do? Well, here it is, number one. This passage teaches us that we have to stand in the gap. Every single one of us, whether you have the spiritual gift or intercession or not, irrelevant, every single one of us between now and Christmas are being invited by God to actually pray in and over this unique moment. Let me remind you something that, again, we all know intellectually, but sometimes we forget. The GTA is lost. The GTA is blind. The GTA is still in Egypt. And who is going to stand and pray for six million people if we don't? We're the only ones who can walk with Jesus into the throne room of God and have unfettered access and ask. No other God has access and no other faith has access and no other person has access. And so here's the question. And here's the, here's the challenge. We are being called to take a moment over these next 10 so weeks to ask for transformation, to ask God to transform families and neighborhoods, to see the lost saved and to overcome evil. Let me just let the Bible speak. Paul, the great theologian who was saved by Jesus, believed in sovereignty. Have you ever seen how he talks about his own family and how it's connected to prayer? In Romans 10, when he says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Jews is that they might be saved. He never stopped praying for his own family to be saved. He saw the connection. Some of you have given up praying for your family. Don't. Keep standing in the gap and on the hill for them. What did Paul write to his protege in, protege in 1 Timothy 2.1? I urge you then to Christians, first of all, that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we will live peaceful and quiet lives and godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. So here's the first invitation. There has to be a disciplined decision that we are going to raise our hands up and ask God during this alpha moment to move in a way we have never seen. And we may not see all the results in heaven, but let me tell you something. If you take the Bible seriously at all, you want to know how serious the war is that's raging over this city, especially now that we're inviting tens of thousands of people to get out of Egypt and find eternal life. Let me tell you, it is hot, it is deadly, and we need to stand in the gap and ask God to win the day because we need to see more brothers and sisters in eternity with us. So we need to commit to pray for our own church, for the 12 churches in this region and beyond. Here's the second thing, because I know this happens every time I preach this stuff. I need to remind you that God takes normal things and makes it unnormal. So many of us are full of fear or apathy or disappointment. God's not going to use me or my family or friend or coworker would never agree to come to Alpha with me. Are you joking me? Hold on. God took a shepherd's staff and made it bring water from a rock, and split the Red Sea. Let's none of us joke ourselves. None of us are more than average people. And yet God takes natural things and makes them supernatural. God takes expected things and produces the unexpected. God takes the mundane and ordinary and does the impossible. Here's the simple thing we all need to say as a church. I'm willing to be the rod of God in God's hand. Just use me, Lord. I'm available. 
God is going to take shepherd staffs. I was sitting in the barber's chair yesterday and I had an alpha thing with me praying, how do I talk to my Italian barber about Jesus? And so I said, Lord, I'm afraid. You're like, John, you're afraid all the time. Evangelism freaks me out. And I just prayed, God, and he gave me a moment. So I invited him to Alpha. And since the Catholic Church and the Pope said it was okay too, I said, that helped a little bit. I said, the Pope's okay with it. You can talk to me about this. (laughs) The point is this. We all need to be willing to be used. We need to pray like we've never prayed. We need to be available. But here's, here's something that struck me this week as I was praying. In my devotional time, I pray, through, I pray through the Bible every year. This is one of the prayers that was written in the devotional I use. It so struck me. God on the move, teach me how reckless disobedience originates in me because of lack of trust. This is the striking phrase. Forgive my unbelief that I call prudence and my fear that often is masked as good sense. You call your church on a world transformational mission. Give me eyes of faith to trust you and follow in fearless obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. So as we come into this moment where tens of thousands of people are being invited to to hear the good news of Christ, as churches are rallying, we need to pray like we've never prayed before. We need to be able to be used in all of our normalness. But here's the last thing. You still have to go in the valley. Yeah, we still got to pray and we still got to be available, but we have to be willing to go. So here's the question. How do you go in the valley? Well, it's simple. You invite people to Alpha. Now, I need to speak to every group in our community this morning. So number one, if you are a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle of junior highs, please listen to me right now. This is so incredibly important. We have seconded, we have hijacked all our junior high program on purpose to run Alpha. Every single junior high in this church, there was over 90 of them last week, by the way, is going to systematically hear the good news about Jesus. So every junior high in this church is going to be clear what the gospel is. But not only that, we are encouraging every one of our junior highs to invite their friends to come on Sunday mornings to actually hear this. So here's my, are you ready to be the bus and the taxi for the sake of Jesus? And not only that, are you actually praying for your kids' friends that they're going to meet Jesus? Because here's what, we know this happens all the time, right? Everyone listening up in Port Perry, right? The one junior high in grade five, six, seven gets saved, tells his mom, his mom tells his dad, mom and dad freak out, it's a cult, they show up, they get saved, we all baptize them, we cheer, it's wonderful. Happens all the time. Let me tell you, you have to be ready to support your junior highs. Here's the crazy thing. My daughter started junior high last week, another midlife crisis I'm having, total midlife, grade five, another sermon, don't have time. Here's what happened. She's already invited two friends out. And I said to my wife, ready to be the bus? The bus started today. And I said, this is so important. Senior highs, if you're in this room, you listen to me, please. If you're in high school, and a long time ago in a land far, far away, believe it or not, I was the youth pastor in this church. Yes, a few, there was a few. There was a few of us left of the ancient times. Listen, I'm the first to admit that over the last eight years, our senior high has been the most difficult run out of this whole church. And we have been working hard to get right leaders and right all that stuff. But I need to say this, and I'm not saying this for the emotion of the moment. If you're a senior high, you listen to me. God is going to do something. He's decided to do something with you now. No, really, I'm not just saying this because this is what pastors are supposed to say in this moment. God has decided to give you an opportunity 
to grow in a way you've never seen. We haven't seen it probably in 15 years. And I just want to encourage you, do not be afraid. If you are a senior high this morning, get ready and invite your friends because Jesus is about to save a lot of senior highs in this region and in this place and you need to be at the center of it. If you're a young adult, I need to speak to you this morning and say this to you. Look, we had this amazing run with Joel. He went up to Port Perry. Hi, Joel. Thanks for what you're doing. Ryan came in and served and now tonight Jervis starts really his first Sunday as our young adult pastor. And that's great. And we're really excited he's here. But look, young adults, do not let this go by. You have to rally as much as anyone else to invite your college friends and young professionals. Tell them the good news about Christ because it is actually life and water for them. And adults, let me just speak to the rest of us. We cannot let the youth in this church shame us. I know we're older and a little bit more jaded, and we don't jump as much as we used to in worship. But honestly, the gospel is just as good for a 40-year-old or an 80-year-old as it is for a 12-year-old. No, really. And I know lots of people say most people get saved before they're 18. That's true. But you know what's been the experience of this church? The experience of this church is actually God keeps moving in all directions all the time. And here's all I want to say. Whether you take people to Ajax or you take them up to the Piano Cafe up in Port Perry or you launch your own in your house and if you, or launch your one in a business. And by the way, if you haven't told us you're doing that, please tell us. We just have to be bold and say, you know, the good news is so good that we're willing to risk our fear or our personality to do this. So I just, all I need to say is, look, we have a God-given moment. And this church needs to make the decision to pray like we've never prayed before, be used by God, and every one of us, junior highs, senior highs, young adults and adults, all of us need to get our invite on, get into the valley, and see what God chooses to do with our little nothing and watch people get saved. And the reason why I'm preaching this is not just as a campaign. God decided to bring Alpha to this city. It was not, I was in the meeting where it almost died. God has opened so many doors and we say this in church all the time, but I want you to believe it. When God opens a door and he's on the move, you always go where God is moving because he's going to do something and God is moving here. So I challenge you as you leave today at all the doors, there are invites here at this site. I don't know where they are in Port Perry. Joel can tell you, take them out and respond by praying, being used, and invite. And let us with great expectancy God, see God win something in the valley maybe we haven't ever seen in our history. Can you say genuinely it is true? Amen to that this morning? So let's just pray right across our whole church. Lord, so much going on from worship, you know, to the launch of the year, to testimonies happening, right? Just we're so thankful just that you'd give us hundreds of kids to share the good news of Jesus. But at this moment, we just want to pray in another direction. So number one, Lord, hear our prayer. Would you empower every place where the good news is going to be shared through Alpha? And we just pray, we're raising our hands saying, Lord, win the day. Win the day with neighbors and friends and enemies and people from other faiths. Just win the day over the GTA. Because again, as we've prayed so many times, if you touch Toronto, the world is touched overnight. So we are inviting you Lord God, send your spirit and do something we've never seen. Number two, we're just saying, Lord, we're available. In all of our fear, and we're available. Use us. Use us. And lastly, I just pray for divine appointments right across this whole church for all different people. Give us courage we don't have. Help us to overcome our fear. And God, would you truly move in a way we've never seen. May many people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Alpha is only a vehicle 
but it points to Jesus who is no vehicle. He is more than that. So we give this time to you and we pray you would mobilize us in Jesus' name. Amen. So in response, we're just going to take a moment to take communion. We're going to celebrate actually the thing we're giving out that we already have. Jesus, when he died, just before he died, took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. He took a cup of wine and said, this is my blood, spilled for you for the forgiveness of sins. And remember what the scriptures teach. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to the table because you're celebrating what you've accepted in Christ. If you're a Christian and you're on the run and you refuse to submit to Jesus or obey what he says, don't take it until you're willing to submit and find love and freedom again. If you're not a Christian yet, it also says clearly don't take this in the scriptures because you've not embraced the one it represents. And so let us just take a moment today in this space as we come to the end of this to really thank God for what we've been given to have joy actually grow and thanksgiving grow in us more and more. So Lord, as these elements are passed, as we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, just convict, bring healing and hope. We ask this uh, in Jesus' name. Lord, help us to forgive others. If we hold anything against the scriptures say, we resolve that first. Just work all of this out among us, we ask in the name of Christ. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.